It's Friday, March 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. For many, this past year of the pandemic has been a lost year. And for our kids and teens, the disruption to school life has had major impacts on both academic life and also took an emotional toll. In Hobbs, New Mexico, the high school there closed and sports were canceled, taking away activities that gave many meaning and provided social interaction. Cooper Davis was one such student who, despite his best efforts, felt lost without his normal routine and outlets, and the stress eventually overcame him. Alec McGillis, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for what the pandemic has cost some teenagers. Next, we've been seeing a decline in those identifying as religious for some time now. And in the absence of religious belief, many have channeled that into political belief. What is America supposed to mean? Or what does it mean to be un-American? Politics have become the new religion, and ideological intensity has risen, driving a divide in the country. Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So Coop and I would, would train remotely and, and we would communicate on a regular basis. Um, and then then Coop got the opportunity to come out and spend some time with me in Atlanta and stay at my house and train with us. And so he would stay with me and my kids and and, um, and became part of our family. Joining us now is Alec McGillis, reporter at ProPublica and author of the new book called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about really what the pandemic has cost a lot of our students and kids across the country. You know, it's been the big disruptor of our lives this past year. It's meant so many different things to so many different people. And the conversation a lot of times revolves around kids and school getting back in there for our younger kids, the developmental stuff socializing. A lot of that's very important for our older kids and our teenagers. There's a lot of talk about mental health and just being taken out of society, so to speak, being taken out of their normal routines. It really impacts a lot of kids in a lot of different ways. And you wrote a a story about Hobbs, New Mexico, and a high school there where really everything was shut down. School was shut down. You had to do the remote learning sports and all those activities also shut down nearby, just across the border in Texas, pretty much fully open. And it's just kind of this contrast in schools and students on one side being deprived of their normal lives, students on the other side seemingly living normal stuff. Uh, So, Alec, tell us a little bit about this, because there's a lot of stuff in this. And and as I mentioned, there's a story here about mental health as well. It's it's something I've been worried about really all year since the pandemic began, the effect that the shutdowns would have on young people. I actually wrote one big article that came out in September about the academic costs for kids. Um, and it focused on a boy in Baltimore, a 12-year-old boy who I've been mentoring and the terrible effects that the school shutdowns were having on him academically. But then I, I was also worrying about what was happening with older kids, teenagers, and just the broader effects, not just academic, but emotional and mental health-wise, and not just the loss of, of school, but also of sports and all the other activities that kids depend on to be out in the world and just what the effect was of taking that all away. And I went to New Mexico because I heard about a, you know, really kind of sad situation there, which did involve, as you just, as you mentioned, the, the border and such an incredibly stark demonstration there of how our elected officials' decisions matter for sort of shaping the lives of our young people. On, on the one side of the border in Texas, things have proceeded strikingly normally. School was open all the way up through high school, five days a 
a week. They still had football games on Friday nights, and they certainly made some adjustments. You know, they had masks and contact tracing and all that, but they were trying to make it work. And then across the line in New Mexico, states led by a Democratic governor who put forward some of the most stringent requirements, limits in the whole country, both on schools and, and generally. And so you had there in the town of Hobbs, everything shut down, barely any kids going to school at all, just a few younger kids, all the sports shut down. And the kids were, the young people, they were really, really struggling with it. As we've kind of learned throughout the pandemic early on, nobody knew what was going on. So it seemed appropriate to shut everything down. As things progressed, we learned that, you know, younger kids don't get really affected by the virus as much as older people, as you get a little older and all that. And even when the limited studies that we have seen now, a lot of the community spread, a lot of spread of the virus isn't necessarily happening in the schools. It's happening outside of the schools, in the communities. And there's a lot at play. Concern right. for health of the students, concern for the health of teachers and administrators as well. So as you mentioned, in New Mexico, they had some pretty stringent closures. And in Hobbs, New Mexico, there at the high school, you know, the kids really had to adjust. And, and you profiled a student. His name was Cooper Davis, a young kid, promising kid, played football. That was a big part of his life. Academics was a big part of his life. And that got taken away completely. And this is kind of where the story continues here. Things aren't always what they seem. And his mental health declined pretty rapidly, it seemed like. It did. I mean, if with him, it was a case of a kid who had been doing really, really well beforehand, doing well, very flourishing in sort of normal life, was got really good grades, was really promising quarterback, six foot four, had big dreams of going to playing football at Stanford, very well liked, a lot of friends, active in his church, very supportive family. And but he just felt like everything was being taken away. It was all the things he had aspired to, dreamed for, tried to achieve in were suddenly just kind of gone. And school was suddenly him just sitting in front of a laptop. They weren't even doing sort of synchronous learning via Zoom. They were just getting lessons that they were doing on their own on their computers. So he had virtually no contact with other students, even over the computer. The sports became all they were allowed to do were these sort of little weightlifting sessions in small groups, no real playing out in the field. And everything that was meaningful and purposeful in his life, everything that he was sort of striving toward was suddenly just gone. And it had a really terrible effect on him. He spoke about it openly. They had a big protest in October at the football field in the town where a bunch of the students got down the field and spoke to all the people in the stands about what a hard time they were having. And he spoke very eloquently about how much he was struggling with this disruption. Yeah, I have to focus on that a little bit more because reading through the article, I mean, that was one of the things that touched me the most. And kids a lot of times don't open up in the same way. Some are more expressive than others. And you're right. He did take that moment to kind of open up. And, you know, he said, hey, my name's Cooper. He says, I play sports and it's a big part of my life. He says, right now, without all of that, I feel really lost in life. That's kind of that moment where you really can stop and think and say, this is really affecting these kids. For adults, you might say, oh, you just can't play sports or, hey, you're just not at school. But it's very meaningful to them. And unfortunately for Cooper, things deteriorated. He ended up committing suicide. But in Hobbs in general, just in that area, it was even more pronounced than that. I mean, I think there was three other student athlete suicides and maybe some uh, six other suicide attempts. So it was a real thing. It was a small town and, and it affected the students there very much. They're, they've been reeling over this. They lost first an 11-year-old to suicide about six weeks into the school closures, who was also very open with his parents about how, what a hard time he was having, missing his friends, missing school. And Cooper took his life in December. And then in October, they also lost an 18-year-old who had recently graduated from high school. 
This is all in a town of fewer than 40,000 people. What a lot of the adults there spoke with me about what the kids were going through had to do with the way that I mean, we have to think back as adults to what it was like to being a young person, being a teenager, and how you don't realize how much other people are going through the same things you are. Often you feel very alone in what you're going through. You lack that perspective, and you also lack a perspective about time. For a lot of us, the fact that we'll have had roughly a year of things being kind of closed down has been no fun and difficult, but something you can kind of, you can see the end of it. But for young people, this is your youth. Like, you're not going to get another junior year. And that's how he felt. This was his junior year. This was the year that he was going to be out in the field, hopefully getting recruited by scouts, putting up some great videos for the scouts, taking all his AP classes, getting good grades. And suddenly that was all just gone. And he was not going to get another junior year. We talk a lot about uh, these psychological stressors on the kids. And uh, some of the mental health experts that you spoke to painted in a couple of different terms. There's stressors that make your life unpleasant, intolerable. And then there's stressors that take good things away. And in that sense, COVID-19, the pandemic, the closures, right, the response to all of this, that's one of those things that took good things away. As you mentioned, it, it took the pleasures of achievements in sports and academics. It took the pleasures of just socializing with your friends. It took those things away. And and this is where it gets really tricky and where there is cause for concern for our young kids because this is how it could affect them. It's the, I guess the the scientific word for it is anhedonia. It's the absence of of pleasure. It's all the things that sustain you that are are simply simply removed. So where does the town move now in response to all of this? The vaccines are rolling out. Uh, We're getting good guidelines from the CDC about being fully vaccinated and being to hang out and uh, without masks and social distancing and things are starting to open up. You know, what does the town do now? They're now just really trying to figure out what they can do for their young people. Really, if they have a real problem on their hands. One of the most poignant things I saw was a um, session where a lot of kids were, this is after Cooper's death, they brought a lot of kids together, sort of early teen kids for a workout session in a strip mall parking lot just to get the kids together with each other. They're doing kind of kickboxing exercises with um, some, you know, karate instructors. And it was just this incredibly poignant scene, these like 13, 14-year-old kids spaced out with masks on doing kickboxing in a strip mall parking lot, all just trying to get them together with each other. The state has finally recently loosened the restrictions and let some kids, let kids back in school for a couple days a week. And then just actually just a couple hours after my article went up, they announced that they were going to have a broader reopening. It's really kind of striking how suddenly New Mexico has reversed course. They've gone from being one of the most shut down states in the country to now opening more rapidly than some other states. It certainly gets a sense that they realize just how difficult this has gotten for a lot of their young people. Alec McGillis, reporter at ProPublica and author of the new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in a One-Click America. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Politics should not be about creating enemies and defeating them. It shouldn't be existential. And it's better to look at our fellow Americans as precisely that. They are our fellow citizens. They are not evil. We're going to have to find a way to live with them. Joining us now is Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us, Shadi. Hi, thanks for having me. You wrote an interesting article for The Atlantic about America without God and how politics is kind of the new religion. We've seen over the past decade or so Christianity 
go down, people identifying as that go down, just kind of religion in decline. And we've seen the rise. I think uh, Pew called it the nuns. So these are people that are atheists, agnostics, those that just do not claim any religion. That number has grown. I think it's about a quarter of the population now. As some of this uh, religious intensity has gone away, ideological intensity has stepped in. Uh, you know, we see the constant fight between the right and the left and how it's like tribalism. You know, people are on all sides of it. So, Shadi, tell me a little bit about uh, what you were writing, what you were trying to uh, get across with this. Part of it is a be careful what you wish for situation that a lot of, let's say, secular elites in major cities are suspicious of religion or at least too much religion. So they might have expected that as Christianity declines in the U.S., that people would become more rational, more reasonable, sensible, and that ideological passions would decrease and we'd all be able to live better lives accordingly. But something close to the opposite has happened instead. And this is where I think the puzzle really becomes important. Why would this be the case, this counterintuitive result? The basic argument I make in the piece is that Christianity doesn't just go away. People still have a desire for meaning. And especially since, as Americans, we have always been a nation of believers. I mean, in, in many ways, we are an ideological country that were based on founding ideals, a founding creed. And to be American has that substantive content, unlike many other nation states where to be German, let's say, is more an accident of birth. Germany is the land of the Germans. There is no particular ideology that makes you German or not German. So because we're a nation of believers, and we have been really since our founding, that belief doesn't go away. It just gets transferred to other things. So it might have once been decades ago, more focused on Christianity and religion more broadly, but now it's being channeled into what might be called political religions. And I mentioned two in the article. One is Trumpism, which instead of, um, well, certainly a lot of Christians uh, supported Trump and Trumpism, but Trump was the focus and not, let's say, Jesus Christ. If we look on the left, we have the rise of wokeism. People can call it different things. But an emphasis which is well-intentioned and good, I think most people would agree that racial justice is important, but you have a version of it that has gotten so fervent and so uncompromising that it does take on the characteristics of a religion. But the problem is, with wokeness, there's religion without the possibility of forgiveness or mercy. And that's one of the good things that religion and Christianity offer there is possibility for redemption. If not in this life, then in the next life. When you don't have religion, then you become very focused on this world because it's really all that you have and it's all that you're focusing on. And that's where I think things become a little bit dangerous. And you made mention in the article too about, you know, more on kind of American identity even. What is America supposed to mean? And you, you made mention in the article, you know, it's rare to hear people, you mentioned Germans, uh, saying somebody is un-German or, you know, un-Swedish or something, un-British. Yeah. But you do hear a lot of times people calling other people un-American. And that's kind of where these dividing lines can happen. You know, you're so held up on your beliefs about something, you're calling other people out because they're not up to snuff, let's say. 
So this is both our blessing and our curse as Americans. It's a blessing because we all share a commitment to what we might call the American idea. But the problem increasingly is that we don't agree on what that American idea means. And you might think of it as akin to a schism in a church or in a particular religion. And you might say, well, if Christians disagree with each other, at least they share Christianity. But sometimes the divides that are most difficult to resolve are the ones within the family. And we all know about dinner table conversations where these are people you love, but in the end, it's hard to reconcile. And that is, I think, increasingly the direction that we're going in. We believe in America, most of us, but we can't agree on what the founding creed is and what it stands for any longer. The discussion to get there would be so difficult, I think, especially how we have become pretty divided in our politics. And it just seems that these ideologies on both sides kind of filled that vacuum, as you, you say, as religion and people identifying as religious kind of wanes. So where do we meet in the middle? How do we get back there? Part of the solution, I mean, it's certainly not easy to do, but in theory, you would have Americans de-emphasizing the importance of politics. Politics is something that we should all care about because we're citizens and we want to make our country better. But politics should not be about creating enemies and defeating them. It shouldn't be existential. And it's better to look at our fellow Americans as precisely that. They are our fellow citizens. They are not evil we're going to have to find a way to live with them. I mean, so if you're looking at it from a liberal perspective and I identify more on the left side of the spectrum, then, you know, there are 74 million Trump voters. If you made politics into the main arbiter in terms of how you think about your colleagues, your friends and your family, that's 74 million people who are beyond the pale. That's not sustainable because that is a lot of people in a democracy and you have to, in some sense, live with the other. And also it can, it can be reversed as well. And obviously there are a lot of presuppositions and stereotypes about liberals in certain parts of the country that they are all godless, immoral, whatever it happens to be. And we can't do elections that way. If we see every election as existential, where the country could be destroyed if the other party wins, that's just not going to work. So the question then is, how do we kind of put politics in its proper place and realize that this world is temporal, it's limited, it's not eternity, and there are things that go beyond this world, let's say. Definitely. I, I totally agree. And, and kind of getting back to the middle on all of that, I think is important for the country we keep having these fights on these extreme sides of things, and there's no compromise. You know, people talk about bipartisanship. It rarely is happening right now. And, you know, it's important where people are, are just kind of set on these dividing lines. So hopefully we can get to some type of agreement on, on a lot of the issues that we're facing because we got to get through it together. But just an interesting piece. I suggest everybody go out and uh, check out Shadi's piece at The Atlantic Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Divers is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.